Thanks for listening to the Church at Severn Run Messages podcast. You can find more information about the church at severnrun.com. Enjoy the message. You know, one of the things that I I really want to say is if you you saw the different pictures of folks uh, our neighbors that we've connected with and um, that we've built meaningful relationship with. And beyond that, we have this, uh, this app called Breeze. And there's over 400 names in there of our neighbors that we have at some point in some fashion served. And I, it really comes down to... Uh, Two things. Um, it comes down to the people like uh, Pastor Kamu and Eric and Emily and myself who invested during the flood and set everything else to the side so that we could be there with people when they were dealing with having lost everything. Um, most people don't even know that there was a flood in West Baltimore. Everybody knew there was a flood in Ellicott City. And um, all of those things that we've been able to do, the food, shelter, help, clothes, shoes, everything that we've been able to do is, is one because of uh, my Broken Wall family. And so there's a few of them here. Can any of the Broken Wallers who are here, can you stand up for me? And then secondly, it's because six years ago, a friend of mine named Drew Schaffner, while I was still in England, I told him about what I wanted to do, that I wanted to start a different kind of church in an under-resourced, underserved area, and that the reason we were going to call it the Broken Wall was because uh, I wanted it to be like the kingdom. I wanted to see us break down all of the walls that separate us, all of the barriers, race, ethnicity, accent, education, can you read, can you not read, do you own a home, are you on the street, do you have a record, have you never been in trouble? Break down all of those barriers so that we could look like the kingdom and he and you decided that you would have our back. And you've had it for five years now. And so every life we've touched, your your fingerprints on that. So thank you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much uh, for our being here. And I pray, God, that you would work past my flaws that you would forgive the waywardness in me and that you would speak to us because Lord we we really need to hear from you thank you for loving us Lord Jesus we love you Amen. 
So Steve, he was a um, he was a fairly young man. He was in his mid to his late twenties when uh, when his father passed away, and he left him the farm and a failing agriculture business. And truth is, is that though uh, Steve grew up on the farm, he was familiar with every aspect of the business. He wasn't really keen on taking over or those sorts of things, but his dad had suddenly died and he decided that this could be his opportunity. This could be his opportunity to make his mark. If he could turn the business around, if he could make a success of the farm, make it a profitable venture, then not only could he do something that his father wasn't able to do, but he could make a lot of money in the process. He could retire young, and he and his family could live a life of leisure. And so he set himself to that very goal. He set himself to making the farm profitable. And he made decisions. And this kid was savvy, too. He was intelligent. He had a great business head about him. And, but it took hard work. I mean, 12 hours a day, six and seven days a week, having to constantly put off vacations, constantly put off days off, put off time with the family, time with his wife, all because he had this goal in mind and he would tell himself you know he felt bad about not being with the kids but you know he he would make up for lost time once they got to where he was going I mean the problem of course was that no one told him that the reason it's called lost time is because it's lost you don't make up for it but he kept pressing on and he said he was doing it for all of them even though deep down inside he knew he was doing it for himself and he kept working year after year and sure enough he turned the business around and he made it this huge success and at the end of this last harvest he was doing the books and he realized one more expansion project that's it one more expansion project, he'll sell the whole thing off and they will be on easy street. It will be a life of leisure from here forward. And so when he got home that night at about 8.30, his wife was uh, in the living room. She'd stopped waiting for him a long time ago. He said, baby, I've got great news. One more project, sweetie. We get through this one, we sell the whole thing, and we're eating at the restaurants you've always dreamed of eating at. We're going to travel. We're going to see the world. Our kids are going to be in the best schools. College is already paid for. You name it, you're going to go into those boutiques, and you're not even going to look at the price tag. In fact, you're going to go to those boutiques where they don't even have price tags. It's just going to be awesome. And she said... Uh huh. Your supper's in the oven. I'm going to bed. See, she heard it all before, over and over again. She wasn't impressed. But Steve, he wasn't put off by her lack of enthusiasm because he said, you know, she'll be singing a different tune when we're eating down in Rio. You know what I'm saying? And so he said, okay, babe, you go ahead. I'm going to have dinner and I've just got a little more work to do down in the office. And so he ate his dinner and made his way down to the office. And about 3.30 that morning, the next morning, his wife wakes up and he's not in bed. And she's like, this is ridiculous. This is just ridiculous and so she gets up and she makes her way to the office 
and she stands at the door and sure enough, he's asleep. His head is just down on the desk and she said, honey, it is time to go to bed and he doesn't stir. He must be that tired, that asleep, she thinks. And she goes to shake him and she grabs the back of his neck and that's when she realized that his skin, it was cold to the touch. And she dialed 911, but it was too late. He was already gone, just like his father. They had a funeral for him. It was really well attended. I mean, he had this huge circle of influence and all these important people came and one after the other, they stood up behind the mic and they talked and they tried to tell his children who their father was. And then, of course, they closed up the casket and they buried him and everyone went home. That night, the Spirit of God came and paused over Steve's grave. And God said, you fool. A couple thousand years ago, there lived a man named Jesus. And the most important thing I can tell you about Jesus is that he is the son of God. And he had some pretty important things to say about how you live this life and how you make it a meaningful life and a life that makes a difference and how you make your mark. He had some significant things to say about how not to be misdirected with your life. And some of those really important things, he says, is in the New Testament. That's the back half of the Bible in a place called Luke. Luke chapter 12. So if you want to turn there with me, it's going to be really helpful. It's Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 15. Or if... You're aerobically challenged. I guess you can just look here on the screen. Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 15. You ready? Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Do you catch that? Life does not consist... Of, in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? That seems kind of cold, doesn't it? I mean, either the man's about to die or the man's just died, however you read it. And the Almighty calls you a fool, you know. But lest you and I think he's into name calling, I mean, because it seems harsh, 
And on top of that, in, in fact, here's the thing that kind of may catch your attention is that, is that Jesus, Jesus had some pretty stern words for calling people a fool. I don't know if you read that or not, but like in Matthew chapter 5, which is like the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, listen, if you say to your brother Raka, you're in danger of the authorities, the Sanhedrin, who were like the spiritual authorities. And those spiritual authorities, they could put you not just out of the church per se, the temple or the synagogue, but they could put you out of the life of the culture of Judaism. And being a Jew excommunicated from everybody else was a near impossible way to live. So he said, you, you, you be careful. You call somebody Raka, and that's what could happen to you. He said, and if you call somebody fool, listen, you, you're in danger of the fires of hell. That's what he says in, in Matthew 5. And so, you know, when God uses this word fool in, in Luke 12, it seems like he's breaking his own rule, but he's not. And um, I get to do something that I have, I have waited years to do. I've seen him use it over and again. I've seen his artwork and I promise you I'm not even going to attempt it because it just would be profane of me. But I am going to put three Greek words up here, okay? So the first one is this one. Raka. Now, I know it looks like paca, but trust me, it's, that's a row, okay? So, raka. And then the next one is this word. Did I spell that right? Yeah, never mind. Moros, okay? Now, moros, that's where we get the word moron, right? And then there's this word. Afron, okay? Now, Raka, here's what's interesting. Raka, if you translate it, it means fool. So you, you see, the translators, they chose to leave it as Raka because otherwise it would read, and if you call someone a fool, you'll be, you know, in danger of uh, answering to the Sanhedrin. You'll have to answer the Sanhedrin. And if you call someone fool, you'll be in danger of the fires of hell. You see, it just doesn't work. And the reason is because it's two different words. You see, raka means fool, and moros means fool. But this one is about your mind, and this one is about your character, your heart. You see, raka means you empty-headed knucklehead. All right, it's about how you think or how you don't think. It's about a line of thinking you've taken. It's a challenge about just thinking differently, right? Now, it's still wrong because you're calling somebody a name and that's, you know, that's a nomos according to Jesus. But moros, moros is different because you call somebody a fool, but it's showing contempt for what's in their heart. Showing contempt for their character. Showing contempt for who they are. Assessing their motives and their heart. And it's very clear that God says, 
He's the only one who judges our hearts. He's the only one who knows our motives. So when you call somebody Moros, then you're assuming the role of God. And let me tell you, when you assume the role of God, you are in danger of the fire of hell. That's what Jesus is saying. Makes sense, right? But then you say, so why is it that in Luke 12, God is able to call Steve a fool? Well, it's because he uses a different word. He uses the word aphron. And aphron, again, it means fool. But check this out. I looked it up so I wouldn't get it wrong because it's been a couple of weeks since seminary. (laughs) Without reason, senseless, foolish. Here it is. Are you ready? Expressing a reckless and inconsiderate habit of mind. You see, Aphron isn't God calling Steve a name. It's God making an assessment about Steve's life. It's God making a statement of fact about this man who is so savvy, he's so astute, he's so intelligent that in all kinds of of all the areas of life that you would try to, to make a profit, he did it on a farm where there are so many variables that you have no control over. And he took all those contingencies into mind. He had the ability to face all of those realities. He was able to simply look at every possible eventuality and still make a profit. And he, with all of that ability, failed to take into consideration the one eventuality that faces everyone. We will die. Our hearts will stop beating. We'll stop taking air. And we will die. And so for a man that gifted and that intelligent to live that recklessly oblivious to the fact that he will die. What other word is God supposed to use? I mean, you or I, we maybe would say, you know, it's regretful, it's, it's, it's tragic, but for God, Aphron, you fool. And here's the really painful part, okay? You ready? Verse 21. And remember, I, I didn't write this, I'm just reading it, Okay? Verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Let me do that one again because it it took me a couple times. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, lest you think that 10% of 100% is being rich toward God, let me disabuse you of that notion. No, seriously, let me put it this way, okay? Imagine this. Imagine you let me come into your backyard and you give me all the tools I need and you give me all the skills and you provide me every ability I need so that I can drill for oil and I strike oil and when I strike oil, I give you 10% of the profit. Would you call that me being rich toward you? 
being rich toward God, that sounds heavy duty to me. I have a little brother who um, I've developed a relationship with over the last three years. And when we first met about three years or so ago, uh, the very first time we met, he wanted to hit me in the worst kind of way. Seriously, I don't think I've had anyone in a very long time want to hit me as bad as this guy wanted to hit me. I mean, just stomp the life out of me. Normally, it takes people, you know, two or three months to get to know me before they want to hit me. So, you, you, do you know him? And thankfully, thankfully he didn't. And it's a really cool story that I hopefully can tell you sometime. But thankfully he didn't hit me. We became friends and God put him in a special place in my heart. And um, turns out that he, you know, he did a seven and a half year bit in prison uh, for assault. And there's a number of other things that have taken place in his life. He's had a really tough go of it. And one of the things that he's taught me, which is important, is that he has taught me that people who are desperate will pretty much do whatever it takes to get through the day. People who are desperate will say whatever it takes, they'll do whatever it takes, they'll become whoever they need to be to get through the day. And here's what's really kind of wild. What you have to do then when you're dealing with people who we call in survival mode is you've got to stop being offended that they lied to you. You just got to not be offended because it's not about me. Now don't get me wrong, it's not me condoning them lying. I challenge it every chance I get, but I cannot take it personally because when you're in survival mode, you will do whatever it takes. You will say whatever it takes. It's no justification. I'm just explaining to you how it is, okay? So check this out. That was cool. The question you got to ask yourself is, well, if they will tell you whatever they think you want to know, if some of my neighbors, not all of them, just, you know, like the 10-year-old who has PTSD because of the people he's lost and the people he's seen killed in front of him, just maybe a grandma who's had four children foisted on her from two different daughters and she had no expectation that she was going to have to raise them in her one-bedroom apartment on her retirement salary. You know, people who want a life they can't have and have a life they can't handle. Some of them will be the people who might lie to you. Might tell you what they think you want to hear so that they can get help. Right? And so the question is, how do you have a spiritual conversation with somebody like that? I mean, honestly, Drew, Drew and I, uh, Pastor Drew and I have talked about this before. You know, I could be like a rock 
star in the Baptist convention, man. Because every Saturday night, you know, we feed all the kids after worship, whether they came or not. We feed, open the doors and we feed all the kids because we want to make certain they get at least one meal for the day, right? I could just pause them in the library, 25, 35 of them, however many it is, that Saturday night and say, okay, listen, guys, before we eat... Don't you want to become a follower of Jesus? Yeah? Pray this prayer with me. And 25 to 35 people will do that. Why? Because they will say what they think I want to hear to get to what they need. So something has to change for me to be able to have a meaningful conversation with them. Does that make sense? You with me? So, check this out. There's this really smart guy. I stepped on it. Uh Uh-oh. There's this really smart guy. Well, he's sort of smart. He wasn't totally smart, but he was sort of smart. Guy by the name of Abraham Maslow. And he was like a psychologist, psychiatrist. He was something. And back about 1943, 1946, he came up with something called a hierarchy of motivation. Now his theory was that people are motivated by their most basic needs first, right? Now over time it developed into Maslow's hierarchy of needs and it's become something else now because there's like eight levels and I just couldn't be bothered to read it. And, um, but basically what he said is, this is how it works, the hierarchy of needs, okay? I'm just keeping it real. Um, physical. The first is the physical. You need food, you need water, you need sleep. Those are the things you need. That's your most basic need. And that will, if you are without it long enough, that will be what drives you, all right? And if you get that, then... Doggone it. (laughs) Showed him who's boss. Next is security. And it's not just safety, personal security, though that's important. It's a place to live that is secure. It is employment that is secure. It's that you know that you have a source for food and your daily needs like health that are secure. All right? And then after that, it's, um, it's love and acceptance, uh, esteem, and then self-actualization, which is like a bunch of humanistic malarkey. malarkey. But anyway, anyway, just but he, I think he's pretty sharp on these bottom two. Basically, what he's saying is that when it comes to your physical needs and your security, if you're without them long enough, you will go into survival mode. You are not thinking about eternity. You're not thinking about how a lie might impact our relationship next week. All you're thinking about is today. How do I get food today? Can I find a place to sleep tonight? What am I going to do about the fact that I just got the eviction notice or the turnoff notice or whatever have you? And see, you will do whatever it takes to survive. And I know that some people think, whoa, this is the U.S. People don't live this way. Why don't you come to my neighborhood just for a little while?
my friend uh, Vicki Dallaire. You guys know Vicki? Yeah, she's pretty cool. I am. Um, I heard her uh, at the beginning of this month. She preached here this amazing message. And if you didn't hear it, it is online. And it rocks. It just rocks. Girlfriend is a communicator, right? And she said this, and I love this. She said that Jesus brought a saving truth with a healing touch. Isn't that amazing? A saving truth with a healing touch. And when I heard that, you know what I immediately thought of? I immediately thought of what Jesus said about the end of the world, the end of time, when it's all over, when the game is called, when we go to our respective homes for all of eternity, right? When Jesus in Matthew 25, he says something just fascinating. He says, you know what? The nations will be gathered together. All of the people will be gathered together and that he, the Lord, the master, will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. The people going to heaven, the people going to hell. Like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be on his right hand, the goats will be on his left. And check this out. This is so cool. Matthew 25 verse 34. You ready? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Wow. And do you notice there in that passage, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was in need of clothes, I was sick, I was in prison. Do you see all that? It all fits down here. Right in these two. And then all of a sudden, I thought back to Luke 12 in verse 22. You got to check this out. This will frost your cookies. Are you ready? Verse, no, it will. It's amazing. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Now, when we read that word worry, we might think of somebody pacing and fretting and those sorts of things, but it's more about what you have focused 
your energy on what you've determined is most important for you to gain. And I love how the King James translates it. I rarely say that, but I love how the King James translates that because it says, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. And I thought, okay, so if I don't have to give a thought, if I don't have to fuss over what I will eat or drink or wear because my father knows that I need it and he's going to provide it, then the question that just occurs to me is, if I don't have to take any thought for my life, then whose life should I take thought for? And all of a sudden, it all kind of clicked for me. Jesus is saying there in other places, I'm going to take care of these two for you. I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you the skills. I'm going to give you the opportunity to be employed. I'm going to give you the chance to take care of food and housing and transportation and all those things. So stop chasing after those, okay? You're going to get those things. And since I'm going to provide that for you, since I have your back, then you know what? You can go have somebody else's back. We can go do those things that are needed for folks who live here so that we can bring stability to their life so that they can then hear a saving message because they've received a healing touch. You see, we don't feed people because it just makes us feel good. We don't take kids to get tennis shoes because theirs are all blown out and we like to thump our chest and say, hey, look what we've done. We didn't spend all of that time in all of those terrible basements after the flood because we wanted to get some medal or recognition from somebody. We did it because we realized if we could bring stability to their lives and we could demonstrate God's love in a practical way, then they would hear us when we say God adores you God died for you God loves you do you see we're not some rotary club with a bible there is a huge mission here. And God says, you and me, we get to be a part of it. And so if you want to know what it is to be rich toward God, it means to focus your life on somebody else's life. Stop thinking about yourself and think about someone else. That means you and me, we together have to come to a realization every single day that this life ain't much about us. And then, if we spend our lives providing food for the hungry and water for the thirsty and clothes for those who need it and shelter for those who need it and training opportunities so people can gain employment and we can teach adults how to read above a sixth grade level. If we can do all those things, then one day I am convinced that at the end of our lives or when Jesus comes, whichever comes first, you will hear him say, come you who are blessed by my father. Receive the inheritance prepared for you since the beginning of time. Or, if you totally want to ignore this, well, first of all, you wouldn't be the first one. Um, 
and decide that it's up to you to provide for yourself and that the best thing you could do is work your tail off so that you can retire early or so you can have that second home or that place in Rio or whatever it is so that you can live a life of leisure. That's fine because that really is your choice. I'm not trying to manage your life because I can't even manage my own, okay? It is your choice, but this is what I need you to know, okay? At the end of your life, God, the God of the universe is going to stand in front of you and he is going to say, you fool. I really hope you guys choose wisely. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's message, feel free to share it with your friends. And as we like to say, love well, live Jesus, and believe big. Believe big.